Well, a happy Christmas, everyone. Can I say that? I'm going to keep saying it. Happy Christmas. I hope you all are doing well. I hope you're excited for the season. And even if you're not, hey, you're among friends here. Uh, we love Grinches. We love people who are excited. We love everyone. Um, so we're, we're glad that you're here with us today. Today we're going to continue our series and our time of Advent. Advent is the coming, the expectation of Jesus at Christmas. And it's a special time. It's a beautiful time. It's also a really profound time as we open up God's Word today. So I want to talk to you for just a minute about this phrase. Maybe you've heard, well, you probably, almost everyone has heard it. The medium is the message. Have you ever heard that before? The medium is the message. What people mean by that is that the way you tell something or the way you talk about something or the way you kind of craft whatever it is your message is, that that actually is the message. An example of this would be like Apple, for example. Apple crafts this message like slick, sleek, technologically advanced, good design. And they show that in their ads and that kind of thing. So in some ways, the way that you're looking at the ad and what, it's, what it looks like is kind of what they're trying to convey you. Does that make sense? This applies to music too. Um, so, I never really understood metal music, for example. Any, any metal heads in here? We've only got a couple former ones, really. We don't really have any, like, thriving metal heads in the house, and that's okay. That's right. It's something I didn't really understand until I really understood sort of like teenage angst in a fresh way. Like, I was a youth pastor out in Pennsylvania, and... Um, all the, well, not all the students, but a great deal of students that were in our, in our student ministry were really into metal. We were in, like, metal bands, and I mean, just, like, dirty, hardcore music. Just, and I mean dirty in a nice way. Um, like, it just a really just, uh, dark. Just, well, we think it was dark. And so, like, I really struggled with it. Like, I never could, I, it took me a long time to get into metal. A long time. But in some ways... When you talk about the medium being the message, there is, there's not a way to listen to that kind of music without getting like a sense of angst or pain or anger. It's not all angry, but there's not a way to li- – like the bands that we were listening to we were going to shows were like – they were singing about Jesus and stuff. Well, not singing. They were like screaming about Jesus and stuff like that. And it was awesome. And, but, and, but you could definitely hear that there was something in there that was just like heavy. Not necessarily bad, and I don't think it was bad at all. Like, I actually really enjoyed some of that. I was going to play some, and I thought, eh, maybe people would just walk out, and that's fine. But, like, I was thinking about it, like, the medium is the message a little bit. If you listen to R&B music, you know that that message is for adults. You know, like, if you listen to rap music, you know that rap music and protest songs and punk music have this, like, common thread of, like, sticking it to someone. You know? And like standing up for yourself. Does that make sense? In some ways, the medium is the message. At Christmas time, when we open up God's word and we see the context and the kinds of things, the kinds of people and characters that come in and songs, all of it, when it comes into focus for us, we find that the mode, the method of Jesus' coming is almost as important as his coming itself. Here's what I mean, that the way that Jesus came at the right time, in the right place, in the right setting, is almost as powerful a message as him coming at all. That's a powerful statement. We saw that a little bit last week when we took a deep dive into King Herod. And what it meant that the king in Jesus' time and place was a deranged, narcissistic, crazy person. That that was who king was when Jesus was born. Now today, we're going to look at Jesus' mother. 
And we're going to look at how when Jesus is born, that the way that he's born has as much to say about him as just himself. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to pray for a minute. And I would just ask you to pray something that Jason prayed just a few minutes ago. Just a few minutes ago, Jason prayed and he said that we would hear what God has to say to us. I don't know exactly the words he used, but something along those lines. Would you just take a couple minutes, a couple breaths, breathe. Let go of what you got going on today. Whatever stresses you brought in here. Really breathe. just take a couple minutes and would you ask God to speak to you? Maybe it goes something like this. God, would you open up my ears? Would you open up my heart? Let me just sit with that for a second. Let's just be together. In preparation. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand something about your invasion on this planet. Something about when your son Jesus is born, what it means in its time and in its place. God, as we approach that, as we approach understanding what it meant in its time and in its place, would you keep in mind our time and our place and what it might mean right now. And as we open up your word, I pray that my friends and myself would see it as alive as ever as relevant as ever, as profound as ever. But even if these stories are old, God, would they not be tired? Would they be awakened by your spirit to speak some truth to our lives? God, draw us in. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna be a couple places in the New Testament. We're gonna start in Luke chapter one, verse 26. Let's pick it up there. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's a story for a different day, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. The biggest thing here is that he sent Gabriel to where? To Jerusalem? No. To Rome? Nope. To Caesarea, the town built in worship to King Caesar, Augustus? Nope. He sends his angel, his messenger, to Nazareth. Nazareth is in like, you know, like when you cross the bridge in Nebraska, it's like Nebraska, the good life, right? Is that right? Is that still? Did they change it? Arbor Day. I thought it was the good life. <laughs> Arbor Day is good too. Anyway, anyway, so you go into a city and like there's like a slogan. You know, if, if you go into Nazareth and then like underneath, you know, in like a cool font with quotes, it says, what good can come from Nazareth? Like that's like, like if you're in the Chamber of Commerce in Nazareth, which there wasn't one. But if you were, if you had one there, they, they had a tough sell. That's the kind of place that Nazareth was. That's the kind of place where our story picks up. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, there was a lot of controversy over this, both in Jesus' time and in ours. But when we read this text and we see that, obviously there's something repeated a couple times there that's pretty relevant. You know, like it's not just any gal. It's like a virgin gal. 
That's pretty important to Luke as he's writing this to the people who will come to read it. It's really important. Why is it important? Why is it important that Joseph would be a descendant of David? Like, why is all this stuff important? For, God, for God's people, all these phrases are loaded with meaning, like jam-packed with meaning. Like, a descendant of David means a descendant of your greatest king. And it was said that his line, though, was broken and shattered. It was like, it was like Lord of the Rings, like everything is. You know, like, from this line of shattered kings, Aragorn comes. Like, from this line of shattered kings, there was whispers that a new king would come someday. That a new king would come in David's line. That, that he would restore God's people in his kingdom. That he would save. So you can see, like, if you're listening, like, your feelers are going, like, your, your radar is going off. If you're one of God's people. A descendant of David. And a virgin whose name is Mary. It was said that a virgin would conceive a bear a son and you would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What could it mean? What could it mean? You know, for some people, they might think, so Mary and Joseph can get married, have children, and that could be the Messiah, right? Not exactly. Because the writer goes out of his way to tell you that Mary is a virgin. By the way, don't let your familiarity take away your shock from the story as we continue. Can you do that? Can we kind of set aside that we know what's going to happen for just a second and just move through the story together? The angel went to her and said in verse 28, Greetings. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Huh? Huh? You you might not catch the huh there, but remember that there's a clue for us in that the angel went to Nazareth. And it was said that nothing good came out of Nazareth. Or that it was a question, what good could come out of Nazareth? It's relevant that Nazareth, that Mary comes from an impoverished family. We, we talked last week about what the political situation was in Mary's time. That politically, King Caesar Augustus ruled the world. And he installed a puppet king, Herod, who was half Jewish and half not. And he extorted the people for money to build cities worshiping Caesar Augustus and retain his power. That he was in league with the religious leaders of his day. That the, the state and the religion got together to oppress the people. That's what happened in Jesus' time and in Mary's time. Mary is not in a place of power. She's not in an important place. She's not in a relevant place. She is in an irrelevant, impoverished, low place. So you can imagine that if an angel shows up and you're in that place as a teenage girl, your response to greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you, might just be, what, huh? What, What do you mean? What do you mean? Look at verse 29. We don't, we, I'm not just guessing. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. This isn't just curiosity. You know, this isn't just like, oh, I wonder what it could be. It's like, do you look like, can the angel see my house? Can he see that I'm a teenage girl? What do you mean highly favored? To be a teenage girl meant to be just a piece of property. Nothing. You were highly favored. What do you mean? What could this possibly mean? Notice that Mary responds in the way that Moses responded back in the day. That her distress is the same distress 
that when God shows up in people in weird circumstances and says, hey, I got something for you. The response to that, almost like a hundred out of a hundred times is, huh? I don't know if you've ever had a message from God. You might be having one right now. <laughs> where, where God comes to you and he says, hey, I want to get your attention about something. You go, what? what? That's, that's Mary. That's Mary. Look at the angel in verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Uh, okay. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Okay. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, I, we've, I've been looking at this text since, I, since before I even, I mean, I heard this before I even understood it. That's how long and how often I've heard this text. But again, guys, I want you to imagine yourself as a teenage girl. I really do. I really do. Imagine yourself. And we're not talking like teenager like 18, by the way. Most people think that Mary was no older than about 14. So I want you to put yourself in that position and to hear this kind of message. Basically, your kid, you're going to have a kid. You're not pregnant. You're a virgin. So there's some problems like to you even having a kid right now. But you're going to have a kid, and not only are you going to have any kid, but it's going to be the best, most important, most significant kid there ever was, and you'll be his mom. But Caesar Augustus is king of the world, and Herod is king in Judea. They are powerful and wealthy and completely in control of everyone's life. If Mary's son is king, what does that say about how God views power and how he views his kingdom? And how he views wealth. What will it mean? Mary asks a really good question like the people of God have been doing for thousands of years. I don't know if you know this, but when you come to the scriptures and you look at how people, when they interact with God, there's not this dramatic, hey, I'm going to interrupt your life with everything. And people just say, uh, okay. That doesn't really happen. This kind of thing happens. Questions. Just like ours. How can this be, Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. Point of order. There's a problem here. There's a little issue with me having a baby. I haven't done the thing that gets the babies. Like, without going into too far, but like, this is Christmas, you know? I'm, I haven't been with someone like that. We haven't played the R&B music. Like, how's it going to work? How's it going to work for me to play, like, to, to be a mother? When we haven't done the thing. Mary does not say, sure. Mary, Mary doesn't come out and say, yep, got it. Yep, everything you said, yeah. She's a 14-year-old girl. An impoverished, powerless girl. And she says, How, how's that going to work out? And he tells her. The angel answered in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Okay. <laughs> does, does that... You know, you know, if you're a teenage girl and you're hearing something that's never happened before in the history of the world... 
Does that really answer your question? Like, I mean, is that like a, yeah, okay, yeah, of course. Of course that's how it's going to happen. But Mary responds this way after her question. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. I would pay really good money to hear her inflection when she says this. Like, it's like a thousand dollar question, a million dollar question. Like, how does she say the words that are on the paper? Like, because typically, and maybe, maybe it's not typical for you, but typically for me, like there's this importance that we assign to this. So we want to see her as like this humble, just, you know, just totally gracious 14-year-old girl. <laughs> as if that's like a normal thing. Like, that's, I mean, I see it as something like this. Uh, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've said. Like, that's how I picture it. You can picture it however you want to, but to me, that's the only way it makes sense. Unless she's not like any 14-year-old girl I've ever met in my whole life. Not that I've met many, but like, that's like extremely rare. So the angel leaves her. Maybe you don't believe me, but let's, let's move on. She embraces the news in whatever way she can. Look at what she does afterwards. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where Herod is king, by the way, where she entered Zechariah's home and she greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby inside of her leaped in her womb and Mary was, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she, claimed, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. The first to preach a sermon about Jesus is John in his mother's stomach. That is bananas. The first sermon about Jesus is in utero. Like that's real talk at Christmas time. Mary goes to see if this thing is true. This thing that the angel said would be true. Like, could it possibly, maybe even, could it, is there any way it could be true? And she finds a pregnant relative. Not just any pregnant relative, but a woman who is said to be barren now has a child. Now, we're really, really familiar with this story. But again, if we, we, need, we really need desperately to take a step back for a second. Because the first people to hear the good news of Jesus are two women. And, and the first woman is a 14-year-old girl. Test question. Who is included in the list of people who could not be witnesses in court at this time and this place? Women. All women. Including 14-year-old ones. Like, really religious guys had read God's word in the Torah. And they said that, like, there's no way. Basically, the bottom line, there's no way that, that women could be involved in Torah. Like, there's just no way. They could be reliable witnesses. That was like an addition to the scriptures, really. But at this time and in this place, the best news, people, the best news is given to these two women. And we have to believe them in order to believe 
Christmas, right? Like we have to actually believe what they said in order for Jesus to be Jesus, right? Right. Another test question. You ready for another test question? Who are the people who witnessed the empty tomb at the end of Jesus' life? Women. Also people who would not be allowed as witness, like they didn't change the law in Jesus' life. Who would not be admissible as witnesses. So, okay, so take a step back from a thousand foot view. We have the patriarchs. We have like male dominated society, right? Women can't even be involved in witnesses. And God says, hey, you know what? If you want to believe the best news, the best news that ever, there ever was in the history of the world, you got to believe people that you wouldn't allow to be witnesses in court. What does that say about the world that Jesus is born into? Because you know ours is so different, right? So, so different. There's no way that we would still be struggling to believe women about pregnancy and about sexual stuff, right? Whoops. Maybe it's not so different. But if you want to come and you want to sing, oh, come, let us adore him. And you want to trim the tree and you want to celebrate Christmas. Guess what? You got to believe this story. And it's impossible. It's, it's never happened before. And, and it's like never going to happen again. It's a one in a million story. Now, how do you think the Bible is going to treat Joseph in this story? Look at Matthew chapter 1. Look at Matthew chapter 1. This is at the tail end of the genealogy of Jesus, which, by the way, is one of the, most, is one of the coolest genealogies in the whole Bible. And then that's a message for another day. But this is at the very tail end, verse 16. This is the end of the end of the end of the genealogy. This is how the scriptures tell us where Jesus comes from. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Do you see what he did there? Because you don't do this in the Bible. You say, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. The son, the son, the man, the man, the man, the man. You don't even mention the mom, by the way, mostly. One you don't even mention. You definitely don't go all the way to the dad and then sidestep the dad to talk about Mary's the mother of Jesus. That's what Matthew does. In essence, he trolls the genealogy. It's amazing what he does. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, the best king, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, when it all fell apart, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah, Jesus. Look at what happens when Joseph hears the news. Look at verse 19. We'll skip ahead to verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, Yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Does Joseph believe the good news? No. He doesn't. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us he's a good dude. Like he's a good dude. He's going he's gonna to follow the law, divorce her quietly. Her life's going to be kind of falling apart after that. But it's like he's doing what he's supposed to do. He doesn't believe it. 
Look at verse 20. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people. The name Jesus means God saves from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is well, what you would expect, right? Because it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And it takes, a, it takes an angel, a messenger from God, to get Joseph to believe Mary. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Now I want to end, and we're almost to the end. I know this waft of chicken is just beautiful. Just hang in there. Hang in there. I want to share with you one more song, and I'm not going to sing it. It's Mary's song. It comes from Luke chapter 1. And before we read it, and before we work through it just with the rest of our time together... I want you to understand something. This song has been like banned by dictators at Christmas time for like hundreds of years. This song has been called the most muscular, and that's the word that he used, the most muscular poem in the ancient world. High praise. For a 14 year old girl's poem. Look at Mary's song, and we're gonna see why. Why it might have been made illegal by dictators throughout history. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Her soul and her spirit from the deepest place in her, moving from doubt and maybe fear and suspicion, moving from, Hey, I wonder how this could possibly, maybe even sort of kind of be true to I'm going to embrace this news is true, to I'm going to rejoice that this news is true. Why all the magnification, Mary? Why all the rejoicing? Why the praise from the depths of your soul? Verse 48, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servants. From now on, all generations will call me an unwed, pregnant, teenage girl. Blessed. From now on, all generations will call me a hero, she said. Me and my poverty, a hero. Me and what good could come from Nazareth, a hero. Me and the no one's going to believe this, hero. All generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. The point is deeper than just Mary talking about Mary. God has done something incredible. He has interrupted a story in a backwater, irrelevant place. In verse 50, she said, His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. She sees the through line of God's grace and His love. This is powerful and subversive. 
Because you remember the world that Mary lives in? It is Caesar's world that she lives in. It is Herod's world. And they don't fear God. Caesar called himself God. The religious folks in her time don't fear God. They fear losing their power and their control. Mary is saying radically in a place and a time where it seems like God has completely lost the plot. We're off the rails. She's willing to make this radical declaration that God has not lost the plot. That we have not been forgotten. Do you feel like God's lost the plot? Like we're off the rails, like you're off the rails in some way. And why? He has performed mighty deeds in verse 51 with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Has he brought down any rulers from their thrones yet? When she's saying this? Not, not really, not in her world. Caesar is still king of the world. Herod is still king of Judea. What, what do you mean, Mary, that he brought down rulers from their thrones? You know, you can read the first part of that, and you could hyper-spiritualize it, right? We can read that first part, we could say, well, he just goes after the proud. That's just like an internal thing. That's really not a political statement. It's not a social statement. No, she makes a political and a social statement. That the rulers will be brought off of their thrones. The religious, the political ones. It's not just a metaphor for her. Look at verse 53. She has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. This is a protest song. Do you remember that poor people were being taxed at like 80% to build monuments to Caesar? That Herod is exploiting his people for the benefit of a foreign power? Mary had known what it was like to be hungry. But she makes a statement that God has entered into that conflict. And he's taken aside. He's entered into the story. He will fill. Jesus, what will Jesus say? Blessed are the hungry, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are you when people persecute you. Like, blessed are those on the bottom, you'll say. We think of him, he just, he's God. He just spoke. He gets, he got something from his mom. Right? Because his song sounds like her song. Because she had the courage to say that God will stand and will make right what we've made wrong. He has helped his servant Israel, verse 54, remembering to to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary identifies the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob as this God of mercy. This God who has not lost the plot, who has intervened and will intervene on behalf of the low, the poor, the disadvantaged, the weak. That it will require the rich and the powerful and the proud to be humble. And I mean low, poor, and disadvantaged in every way. And I mean rich, proud, and powerful in every way. Spiritually, politically, economically. Those are all our categories. They don't exist for Mary. Because when she looks out, she sees a world where Herod is king. Where Caesar is king. But she's been promised a kid who's going to be king. 
Sometimes the medium is the message. Not always. Sometimes. Sometimes when God wants to demonstrate who he is and where he's at in the world and the story and the kingdom that he comes to bring to us, he interrupts the life of a poor, teenage, irrelevant girl and makes her the most relevant ever. He takes one who's not even going to be believed by her fiancé and make her the mother of his king. He's going to take all the poor and the powerless and he's going to enter into their story. This is what the coming of Christ is like. This is it. This is it. This is his message. This is his power in the story. Let's make this real for us today. Obviously, there's, I mean, is this a relevant story? <laughs> is this a relevant? I mean, come on. How could it get more relevant than what I just said from God's word? Like, I didn't say any names. I didn't say, I didn't talk about it. Like, but we're all like, like, wow, that's shockingly relevant. How is it relevant for you? Where has God maybe lost the plot in your plot? Where has God interrupted your powerfulness or powerlessness with a message of grace and mercy? Let's pray. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and take another breath like you did before? Like hopefully you've been doing this whole time, but let's breathe deep for a second. place in your heart where this has just been a cute, irrelevant story? Where does this connect with your heart? With your life? How does this address your relationship with power? Is there some sort of situation that you're facing right now that's powerless? And you need an interruption today of God's mercy. Just take a minute. Father, we come to your word and we want it to interrupt our plots. 
our schemes, all the ways that we try to get things from you or from other people. God, we see this message of you interrupting the powerless, of you being merciful, of you bringing the best news out of a place where people said, what what good could ever come out of that place? That if we want to believe the story of Christmas, the story of your son coming to this planet, we have to believe a 14-year-old girl who's pregnant and not married. God, that if I want to believe the resurrection, I have to believe the women from the tomb. God, would you confront our conceptions of power, of what it means that you would be merciful, of what it means that you would humble the proud. And I've got plenty of it, God. I've got plenty of pride. And I think, my friends, I think we're discovering that we've got a lot of it. God, that for some of us, the good news is not gonna sound like good news because it's gonna mean we're gonna have to give up our pride and our power. That we're gonna have to humble ourselves and be a part of a story that's much bigger than us. God, for those of my friends that are sitting here listening to this or listening, however they listen, they're feeling powerless in the world. God, would we see from your word that Mary is not alone and that we're not either. That you emphatically, powerfully are on her side. And through it, you're gonna save the world. God, we thank you for this radical message of your grace and your love shown to us. God, help us to apply it now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'm gonna pray.